Matthew chapter 16. Would you be finding Matthew 16? And can I just say, uh, bro, Brother Glenn, what a blessing um, this conference has been to me. I've been the one that has been blessed. Uh, Brother Travis, the music has been phenomenal. Um, man, you just kind of want to take this and uh, sprinkle it on the next church you go to, on some of those dead churches you go to, you know what I'm saying? And uh, I'm telling you, my wife, uh, was uh, we were talking on the phone last night, she said, well, are they, do they sing contemporary or do they sing traditional? I said, they sing heaven stuff, man. I, I'm telling you, it, uh, it just blessed my soul. And thank you so very much, Brother Travis. And then for your spirit, uh, the contagious spirit that is here. Don't stop that stuff, man. Thank you for the words of encouragement, and thank you, Brother Glenn, for this awesome, awesome privilege. And Brother Kevin, uh, I'm still wet, man, from last night, and um, I'm praying that God will do it again through you this morning. We're praying for Big Brother as he gets here in just a little bit. Matthew chapter 16, I want to preach on this subject. Are you a follower of Jesus or just a fan? Are you a follower of Jesus or just a fan? You see, we're going to talk about that C word this morning, that word commitment, because that's what it's all about. There's a lot of people who profess they know Christ, but not everybody's following him. You know, the Bible says in Matthew 7, not all that will say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of the Father. And I, I'm not talking about a, a works concept kind of thing, but here's the bottom line. Jesus didn't save us from hell. He saved us from sin. And, and, and the relationship that we can have with the Lord Jesus through the blood of Christ. And so we want to talk for just a moment, just one verse of Scripture. Find verse number 24. And even though it's only one verse, would you stand please in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Are you a follower of Jesus or are you just a fan? Would you be seated all over the building with your Bibles open in your laps? I love the story of the female driver that slammed on her brakes when the traffic light turned yellow. And instead of slamming on her gas pedal like the rest of us do to beat that traffic light before it turns red. I mean, that's what the guy behind her had in mind. And he slammed on his brakes and came inches from hitting her. Oh, was he ticked off. He beat on the steering wheel and he laid on the horn and he cussed and he had a major fit of road rage. Well, unbeknownst to him, there was a police officer behind him and he just kept on. So pretty soon the blue light came on and the next thing you know, the man was being escorted from his car by handcuffs, put in the back of the police car, taken down to the station where he was processed and fingerprinted and locked up in the county jail. About two hours later, he was released with a major apology from the police department and he said, sorry, sir, we arrested you by mistake. And he said, arrested me by mistake. You've got to be kidding me. And he had a major fit once again. And he said, why in the world did you arrest me? And the arresting officer said, well, Sir, as I pulled up behind you, I kind of surveyed the back of your car and I, I saw two bumper stickers. One said, honk if you love Jesus. And the other said, what would Jesus do? And I saw a license plate holder that said, real men love Jesus. And I saw a Christian fish emblem magnet on your trunk. And I got to thinking about that for a moment and I thought anybody representing Jesus wouldn't be acting like you're acting. That must not be your car. You must have stole it. That's why I arrested you. You know, I feel one of those sermons coming on again. 
You know, sometimes we act differently in church on Sunday than we do on Monday. Now, somebody needs to help me preach. Sometimes we behave different inside the church house than we do outside the church house. And what I'm afraid is that we've got some professing Christians that drop by God's house for about an hour on Sunday and give him a little nod, and then they go on with business as usual. I wish I could give you a different report, but I'm afraid that, and I call them fans of Jesus, I'm afraid that folks drop by God's house and they clap and they sing and they celebrate, but when church is over, it's over, and they have no business of following him the rest of the week. Can I make an announcement? Jesus is not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. I mean, that's what verse number 24 says. I mean, it says, if anyone desires to come after me, Jesus is talking, by the way, if anyone desires to come after me, let him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking now, we're the only ones that are the if as to whether we're going to follow Jesus or not because verse 24 is certainly an invitation to follow him. Jesus said if anybody will, no forms to fill out, no credit check, no background screening, no pedigree required. Jesus said if anyone, he's not asking for tax returns. He, he's not asking if you come from a long line of the wrong kind. In fact, Jesus doesn't even ask where you come from. All he asks is, if you're interested, would you like to follow me? Can we stop for just a moment and feel the impact of that invitation? Jesus wants us. Hallelujah. See, he doesn't need us We need him, but he wants us to follow him. And friend, that message is on every page of the New Testament. Follow me, live for me, serve for me, do my will, be my disciple. I'm getting ready to go back to heaven. I need somebody to spread my gospel to the end of the world. Will you do it? Hallelujah, he wants us. Praise the Lord. You see, biblical discipleship is that process whereby we cultivate all the traits that are in our Christian life that bring us from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And then the goal is to replicate that in somebody else so we can be proper representatives of the kingdom of God. In other words, so the people can resemble the teacher. So we can think and look and act like the one we're following. Replicas of the Redeemer in order to influence our world for the one we represent. My goodness gracious, if Satan can produce disciples that wreak havoc and destruction on this world, the king of all glory ought to be able to transform disciples that will produce that kind of message of transformation to the same world. But maybe the reason we're not doing that is while we have a bunch of churches and a lot of members, the king is having trouble finding disciples. So for a few moments, I want to look at one verse of Scripture. My goodness, it's only 19 words, but isn't that full what Jesus said in verse number 24? And I want to look at that for just a few moments, and I want us to see what it takes to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. All three points in one verse, a preacher's dream. Let's talk about it, guys and ladies. First of all, becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ begins with self-denial. I think I'm going to say that again. Becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ begins with self-denial. Jesus gives a very powerful statement in the beginning of verse number 24, not a politically correct statement. He wasn't very good at making those, but a powerful statement indeed when Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself. You need to deny himself, sir. Deny yourself, ladies. You need to deny yourself. 
Now what prompted Jesus to say it that way? Well, what prompted him to say it that way is it's a true statement. I mean, he's God and we're not. I mean, we must increase so that he can decrease. But he also said it because he just had a recent conversation with one of his disciples that we need to talk about for just a moment. A conversation about discipleship. Bible study with me for just a moment. We're in the great 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, one of those red letter chapters that along about verse 13, Jesus is doing some teaching with his disciples in the coast of Caesarea Philippi and he asked them two questions in verse 13. Question number one is, he asked them, whom do men say that I am? No, Jesus wasn't jealous, no. He didn't have an ego, no. He didn't have an inferiority complex. But he did ask that question for two reasons. First of all, the region of Caesarea Philippi was strongly inundated with statues of stone idols and worship of false gods. It had once been the center of Baal worship. The Greek god Pan had a shrine there. Uh, Herod the Great had a great temple erected in honor of Caesar Augustus. Here a God, there a God, everywhere a God. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know in the midst of all this pagan superstition that there was one God and one God alone. Second of all, he knew that the disciples could not make a decision about who Jesus was by taking a poll among the people. This is year two of Three and a half years in his time, the disciples made up their mind who Jesus was. So that's why he asked that question. You know what? It really doesn't matter what anybody else says about Jesus. It matters what you say about Jesus. One of these days, we're going to stand before him all by ourselves because of what we did with the man Jesus. So that first question, just as window dressing, is not the important one. Question number two is the important one. It's found in verse 15. And Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, among all those stone gods and concrete idols, I don't believe he stammered or stuttered. I don't believe he said a bunch of us. I don't, see, I don't think he said the word like 27 times. I, I'm telling you, he emphatically declared, you are Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The one who stopped by Mary's womb and, and became deity in human flesh. And when Peter makes that confession, he got a blessing from Jesus. Oh, to be blessed by Jesus. Verse 17 said, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That wasn't a head answer. That was a heart answer. And then with the great temple of Caesar Augustus in the distance, Jesus gives great confession number two in verse number 18 when he said, and it's with that kind of attitude and that kind of conduct, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a thrilling moment that must have been right there. Can I tell you something, Hillcrest? They had church right there. I'm telling you what a moment that was. But wait a minute. Church ends pretty quick. Because three verses later in verse 21, Jesus said, but before I do that, I got to stop by Jerusalem and submit myself to the religious leaders and, be, and suffer and be killed and be raised on the third day. And verse 22, Simon Peter said, oh no, you're not going, Lord. Verse 22 says, Peter rebuked Jesus. Oh no, he didn't. Oh yes, he did. Six verses before, Peter makes the greatest confession that anybody could ever make about Jesus, and now he's rebuking the Son of God. He goes from spirit revealing in verse 16 to flesh revealing in verse number 24. I, I mean, there's only two words that can describe what Peter just did right there, and those are the words dumb and dumber. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Unless you want to throw a third word in there, 
And that is the word arrogant. Peter gets something right for the first time in a long time, Brother Kevin, and then he gets so full of himself that six verses later, he tells Jesus what he's not going to do. And did you understand the language of verse 22? He took him aside. Can you just see Peter doing that, Lord? Listen, you're, you're, you're a good teacher. Oh, 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 you're a good teacher. But it's time somebody taught you a thing or two. How can somebody be so arrogant, man? And the first words out of Jesus' mouth about being a disciple is, if you're going to follow me, you're going to need to lose that attitude. You must deny yourself. So here's the question. What is so important about denying ourselves that it's listed first among the requirements to be a disciple? Well, let's talk about it for a second. First of all, it's a biblical principle. Yeah, parents, it's a, it's, it's a moral and social principle. We need to teach our children to treat others kindly and not think of ourselves and not be selfish. And nobody loves a conceited person. But first and foremost, it's a biblical principle. Six verses, uh, six chapters later, Jesus teaches the two greatest commandments of all. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Did you catch that pecking order? Jesus first, others second, and ourselves last. By the way, Jesus J, others O, yourself Y, that's the only way to have really full joy and complete joy is to put it in that order. And then the next chapter, seven chapters from now, he says these words, the humble shall be exalted and the exalted shall be humbled. Translated, humble yourself and I'll lift you up. Exalt yourself and I'll pull the rug out from under you. God hasn't called celebrities. God has called servants. And let's understand something. Verse 24 uses that deny word, a word that means to completely disavow and disown. It means to completely separate yourself from yourself. And by the way, he uses the same word on this same disciple, doesn't he? When Peter denied that he ever knew Jesus, when he disavowed Jesus, when he disowned Jesus, when he separated himself from Jesus. Brother Glenn, I think that's what Paul meant in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about our battle with the sin in the flesh and he says the things I ought not to do I do and the things I should do I end up not doing a wretched man that I am. It's almost like the apostle Paul is looking in a mirror and he's saying, you know, I do pretty good to that guy right there, that guy right there messes me up. We mess up ourselves sometimes. Do you know 93 million selfies are taken worldwide every day? And I don't know whether you're going to like this statistic, but the 55-year-olds take more selfies than the 18 to 24-year-olds. Boy, it really is about us sometimes, isn't it? Now, if you don't believe me, the next time you are in a group photo, tell me the first person you look for. And if you don't look good, the whole picture is bad, man. See, that's why what, that's what we got to conform to his image. Because you know what, Brother Kevin, the same word I see on every page, as I read my Bible, the same word I see about Jesus on every page is the word humble. From a lowly birth in a barn to a ministry of three and a half years when he was homeless to the death of a regular criminal on a cross. 
Even the grave they put him in was borrowed. Of course, he'd only need it for three days, but I'm just saying. And then the conversation that he had throughout the Bible where he kind of shields the attention off of himself to other members of the Trinity. The Father has sent me. I came to do the will of the Father. I, 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 I bear witness of the Father. When the Holy Spirit comes, greater things will he be able to do. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll guide you into all truth. See, there's one thing we can't get away from. Verse 24 doesn't say deny your friends, though it's important who we associate with. But it doesn't say if you want to be one of my disciples, you got to deny George and Fred and Susie and Mary. It says you got to deny you. It doesn't say deny things, and certainly things get in our way. It says deny us. Ladies and gentlemen, if we don't manage this guy, we'll never sell out to that one. Do you understand that? So first of all, it's a biblical principle. Second of all, it's a life principle. I mean, I mean, all about our lives is about denying. I mean, let me just give you a few examples. Marriage. Hey, singles, you want to get married? You got to deny yourself. I mean, think about it for just a moment. If you live all by yourself, you've designed a schedule that just meets your needs because there's nobody else at the house. And when you think about it, you got a pretty good gig. Yeah, you do. To a certain extent, come and go when you want. Eat whatever you want when you want. Wash those dishes in the sink when you want, if you want. Go to bed when you want. Watch your favorite TV show. When you get married, that ain't happening anymore. I just want to make that announcement, okay? I mean, it's like the preacher told that couple that he was counseling. Listen, the day you get married, it ain't no longer about you, and it ain't no longer about you. It's about somebody else. And, and, and that's the truth. One of my favorite foods is mashed potatoes. My wife leaves the skin on. Oh, they're good. Now, my wife travels, and I travel, and... So I wanted to know how you make that, so I watched her one day. And Brother Glenn, she took two giant spuds, and they were different shapes and different sizes. It had bumps and bruises on, on, on different places. But then she put them in a pot of boiling water, and when she took them out, she cut them and sliced them and diced them and smashed them all together until those two independent spuds, you couldn't tell one from the other. Do you know what marriage is? A great big bowl of mashed potatoes, Amen. But done right, it's good. You know what we tell the bride and groom at the, at the wedding, don't you? I wish you all the happiness in the world. And certainly we do, but happiness is not the goal of every marriage. God said Genesis 2, being one was the goal of every marriage. One desire, one focus, one dream, one plan, one vision. You know what, in a day when folks think they need to redefine the marriage manual, I think the originator knew what he was talking about, don't you, amen? So first of all, there's marriage. Let me give you another one, health and nutrition. Oh, is that ever a self-denying principle for sure? We've discovered that if we're going to lower our cholesterol, by the way, I couldn't spell cholesterol 20 years ago, and now I say it 20 times a day. Do you understand that? We're going to lower our cholesterol and lose pounds and eat right. We've got to deny ourselves food that tastes good because you know what the adage is, if it tastes good, get it out of your mouth because it is not good for you. I mean, we know that. We know that for sure. 
And yet, do you know the best diet out there is not Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, Nutrisystem? No, the best diet out there is the deny yourself diet. Put the cheeseburger down and walk away slowly. Am I not right? I mean, think about the, this is one of the toughest things I have to do as a human being, man, the older I get. Hey, students in the building, enjoy yourself not right now. Eat the pizza right now. Because one of these days you can't even look at it, man. And here's the deal. If we set out to lose 10 pounds and we lose it, then we go out and celebrate by eating some cheesecake, don't we? <laughs> Think about the things we got to give up. Bread, bre bread. You know, Jesus never said he was the broccoli of life. He said he was the bread of life. Klondike bars. You know that little chocolate hockey puck is good. Do you know that? And when you got to say no by saying yes to rice cakes, that ain't fun, man. I've been into a rice cake the other day, Brother Kevin, and dust just flew up. And that's about how it tasted, do you understand? Although I will tell you, I've drawn the line at eating styrofoam. I will not do that. I was shopping the other day with my wife and I saw this can on the shelf of our local, local grocery store. I couldn't believe it. I took a picture, still got it in my phone. It was a can of, are you ready? Spam light. <laughs> Boy, I bet you that's good. See, regular spam such a delicacy, they thought they'd have to take a little edge off of it. But while I won't eat cardboard, I've discovered that I must deny myself things like pie and cake and ice cream and chocolate, and I'm getting depressed talking about it. But it's an example of a life principle. Let me give you another one, praise and worship. Contrary to popular belief, and I think we nailed it last night, both preachers when we talked about that the church in 2018, contrary to popular belief, is not designed to meet your needs. It's not designed to make you comfortable. It's not a place where you can go sing your favorite song. We meet to worship a king. Do you understand that? And we'll be in church service sometimes and the glory will fall. And it'll fall so much we don't know whether to lift our hands or fall flat on our face. And so sometimes we don't do either because of our tradition or what our denomination teaches us or what we're going to look like. I remember when I was a pastor, I led a guy to the Lord, personally discipled him, and he was growing in every area by leaps and bounds, except in one area in his expressive worship. And he'd say, Pastor, I can't. I, I, that's just not me. I'm shy. and That's not my personality. And then he took me to a football game, and a miracle occurred. <laughs> I mean, from the opening kickoff, he beat on me. He screamed. He hollered. He lost his voice, and then he had the audacity to want to jump in my arms when his favorite team kicked a winning field goal. His time ran out, and I'm thinking, who is this masked man, man? Can I tell you, if you get excited about a pig full of air crossing a chalk line, you can get excited about missing hell because a Redeemer has saved your soul. And I don't know who I'm talking about, but Dad... 
The greatest thing you can do in front of your kids is worship the King of Kings freely. They've been watching mama do it, and they think it's a woman thing, but it ain't a woman thing. It's a God thing. Hallelujah. I'll give you one more. Tithing. The Bible says the tithe is the Lord's. But based on whatever research group you read about, what is it? 4%, 7%, 10%, 12% of all Christians tithe and the rest tip or give nothing. Can you imagine what would happen if every believer just tithe? Deny yourself. It's about changing a culture. It's about turning a world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know who said it, but they said it well. A Christian attorney is not just an attorney. He's God's representative in the law field. So the courtroom can see what happens when God tries a case. A school teacher is not just a school teacher. He or she is God's representative in the classroom. So the students can see what happens when God teaches a lesson. A Christian housewife is not just a housewife. She's God's representative at home. So her children can see what God looks like when he raises a family. Are you kidding me? Listen, we've got to decrease so he can increase. Being a disciple of Jesus begins with self-denial, but quickly Jesus gives another powerful statement. He says that a disciple of Jesus continues with sacrifice. Look at the next line in verse 24. If you're going to come after me, you're going to have to take up your cross. I love what Luke says in the same version, in the same verse. You're going to have to take up your cross daily. Do you know why Peter rebuked Jesus? Because Jesus used the killed word. That's right, look at verse 21. Jesus said, I got to go to Jerusalem and submit myself to the religious authority and suffer and be killed. See, I don't know what Peter had in his heart of understanding about what Calvary was going to be about. I, I don't know if he, he, he kind of agreed in his head and heart about what Jesus had been telling him what he's about to do, but he understood what it meant to be killed. Yeah, he did. See, the disciples thought that Jesus was about to set up his earthly kingdom right then and there, and he was going to come on a, a flaming white horse and slay all the bad people. The only problem with that theology is he'd have to slay the disciples because they were bad people too because all of us sin and come short of the glory of God. But they thought that they were going to be his assistants, and Peter's thinking, you can't do that if somebody kills you. And that's why Jesus rebuked Peter right back in verse 23 and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, because those are the same words that Satan promised Jesus when he was tempted 40 days in the wilderness. You can be a king without a crown. You can uh, be Christ without a cross. Uh, as he took him to the pinnacle of the temple, you can have all of this without dying. But the idea that there can be a Christ without a cross is satanic theology because we don't just need a king to reign over us. We need a savior to save us. And the one who picked up his cross and took it all the way to Calvary is asking us to pick up ours. So what does it mean to take up a cross? Well, maybe we ought to discuss what it doesn't mean first because as most preachers in this room will agree, we're probably at the most misinterpreted, misunderstood phrase in all the Word of God because most people interpret cross-bearing as some burden they got to carry in life. You've heard them say it. It's a cross I must bear. Like a thankless job or a strained relationship or, or a physical illness. I remember the time the lady told me her husband was her cross and 
I remember telling her, no, he might be a stubborn pain in the neck, but he's not a cross and neither is your arthritis or bursitis or diverticulitis or gastritis. Those are ailments and lost people have those ailments too. That's not what he meant when he meant to take up the cross. So are you ready? Here's what it means. A cross is a cross. Because if you look up that word cross in the Greek New Testament, every time there's the word cross, there's only one Greek word and it meant death. Nobody within earshot of verse 16, of verse 24, when Jesus says, take up your cross, thought of it as a symbolic burden to bear. No, they did not because in the first century, they knew of the cross as a torturous death. As thousands came to the cross to be executed like lethal injection is in our day. Shoot, there might have even been a gasp in the crowd when Jesus said, take up your cross. Because the Romans required the condemned criminal to pick up the crossbeam and carry it to his own place of execution. So what does it mean to take up the cross? It means to identify with Christ's death in every regard. To identify with his rejection. Some people lose their family and friends when they accept Christ. It means to identify with his suffering. Some people lose their life when they accept Christ. It means to identify with the ridicule. Many of us are made fun of by our associates because of the commitment we have in our following Christ and yet I want you to know it's easy to associate ourselves with the same group in a Bible conference but out there is the real nasty now and now. It means to identify with his death because he was willing to die. He wants us to die to ourselves and be willing to live for him. Taking up the cross is a call to absolute sacrifice to pay whatever price is necessary to follow Jesus. I love how Jesus could draw a crowd and then disperse one just like that. See, multitudes followed him all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But when Jesus said something silly like, follow me, he could shrink a crowd, couldn't he? Like the guy that said, okay, Lord, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, really? Can I tell you where we're going next? We don't have any reservations at the comfort suites. We don't even know where we're going to lay our head. In fact, I don't even have a home. But if you're willing, get in line and follow me. Or the rich young ruler who said, I'll follow you, Lord. And Jesus said, okay, go home, empty your bank account and give all your money away to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. Come follow me. And the Bible said the rich young ruler did not follow him but ran the other way. We have the greatest life there is as a Christian, but it ain't fun sometimes. Like my friend Willie Rice says, Calvary Baptist Church in Clearwater, and if you're ever vacationing there, and you're looking for a church, go to Calvary Baptist Church. Willie Rice says if you look in Ephesians where it lists all the armor, the first thing it mentions is a helmet, not a party hat. Yeah. So preacher, listen. I'm not asking or thinking that we should change our invitation. But I'm wondering sometimes when we give the gospel invitation, if we said these words, come accept Christ, it'll be the greatest thing you've ever done. But you need to understand before you do it, you might lose your place in the world. You might lose your friends and your family. It's not going to be fun all the time. You may suffer some emotionally. Your life is about to dramatically change. I wonder if the number of false converts would suddenly decrease, Brother Glenn. You see, the invitation to discipleship is not just to pray a prayer. It's a summons to pick up a cross. And we've got to do it because I'm going to tell you the world's going to continue doing their thing. Do you understand? They're going to continue to abort babies. They're going to continue 
Brother Kevin to be confused about what bathrooms to go to. They're going to marry within their sex. They're going to continue to shoot one another. And every Christmas, somebody's going to get offended and tell us to put baby Jesus and his plastic self away. And I believe me, if an atheist is afraid of a plastic Jesus, can you imagine what they're going to do when the real one shows up? But because they're going to continue their agenda, we've got to continue ours. And we've got to let a lost and dying world know that there's hope in his name is Jesus. And by the way, God's not trying to get the attention of the White House. He's trying to get the attention of the church house. There's a third statement. First of all, he says it begins with self-denial. It continues with sacrifice. It's completed with service. Jesus says, follow me. Might have been the two most important words he said in all the Word of God. And by the way, the two most important words that you and I say is, yes, Lord. Follow me, Jesus said. Follow me. Follow me, not a church. Follow me. Follow me, not a creed, not a crowd. Follow me. Follow me, not a, a movement or a religious system. Follow me. Follow me, not a program, not a preacher, not a personality. Follow me. Follow me, not a political platform. Follow me. I love and support and pray for my president, though often I've wanted to call him and tell him to quit tweeting. Would you please quit tweeting? Would you just quit tweeting? But I love and pray and support my president. But you'll have to agree with me no matter what aisle you sit on in your political persuasion that at times the government resembles a reality TV show and the White House has become a fight house. But I got news for you. No matter what happens on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, next election, there are four things that are for sure. Number one, we still live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Number two, God is still in charge. Number three, Jesus is still Lord. And number four, you and I still have a call on our lives to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ because our hope is not in a president, it's not in a party, it's in a person because our symbol's not a donkey or an elephant, it's a lamb. I'm Ron Corm, and I approve this message. God bless you so much.